Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today we're with someone I've, I've wanted to interview since we started this podcast. Uh, a little bit about Daryl Davis. I'll introduce you, Daryl. Uh, civil rights activist, a musician, more importantly for me, that, that's the fun part. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, But Spike Lee has a, a new film out about an African-American uh, FBI agent who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan, but it has to Actually, have it's a police officer. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, police officer who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan, but has to have a white guy go on his stead um, into the KKK meetings. But um, not so with you, Daryl. You're <laughs> you're a civil rights activist who did it all yourself, and you're not even associated with the police, and you've actually talked members of the KKK out of their robes. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. It, it, we, we've uh, spoken many times, but so I'll just ask this question. How do you get a member of a hate group to give up hate? How did you do that? You know, it's exposure and a conversation. What I find today is too many people sit around talking about each other or talking at each other right. or talking past each other. And I prefer to sit down and talk with each other. But when you do that, you have to go in armed, not with a weapon, but armed with knowledge. And oftentimes I go into these meetings with a white supremacist, KKK members and otherwise, knowing at least as much, if not more, than they do about their own organizations. And I've been studying this for about, you know, for about 30-some years. So even though they may not like me, they respect me for my, for my knowledge. Well, when you, what's the first thing you say to them when you sit down? I mean... How you doing? I'm Daryl Davis. Hi, Daryl Davis. Brian Karen, pleasure to meet. Really, and that's yeah. and you just start from there. We start from there, and you know, I mean, a, a Klansman or Klanswoman is not cut out of a standard cookie cutter. They come from all walks of life, all educational backgrounds. You know, we the public are so used to seeing them on some of these uh, talk shows, you know, throwing chairs and all that kind of stuff. Right. But they come from third grade dropout all the way to president of the United States. President Warren G. Harding was sworn into the Klan in the green room of the White House. President Harry Truman had joined the Klan for a short time before he became president. He didn't like it, he got out. Supreme Court Justice uh, Hugo Black was a Klansman. He had to leave the Klan in order to sit on the Supreme Court. So, I mean, you know, these are brilliant people. But at the end of the day, you're an African-American gentleman. They don't like you. They, how do you sit down and talk with someone who, by their very nature despise who you are just by breathing. I mean, isn't that hard? There, yeah. There are degrees of hate and degrees of dislike, etc. Uh, there are those who hate you and won't even talk to you at all. There are those who feel superior to you. 
Uh, and there are those who feel that, you know, you're you, I'm us. I'm, I'm you know, who I am. And we should be separate. These are separatists. They right. don't necessarily hate you, but they don't want to mix with you. Separate but equal. Well, they don't know. But they don't the equal, equal part, they don't. Yeah, yeah right, just separate. Right. But I, I deal with separatists and supremacists. And the thing is, if they're willing to sit down and talk, because, you know, everybody wants to express their superiority. Right. So if they're willing to sit down and talk with me, I'm willing to listen. And when I get done listening and when they get done talking, then I'll give them evidence as to why I believe, you know, that they are wrong. And then they have to go and consider that evidence. And they struggle with it because, if, you know, we can argue opinions all day long. Right. But you cannot argue facts. Well, so, <laughs> we try these days to argue facts. <laughs> try, try to change the facts right, all the way around. Alternative right. facts. But, uh, you know, so they have to go home and struggle with that. And they have to have to come up, you know, do they continue believing a lie? Or do they believe the truth and possibly... Um, well, what are some shame these... themselves by by having been uh, in a lie for so long and give up that ideology. What are some of the things that you've confronted them with, the facts that you confront them with that make them change their mind? Oh, all kinds of things. Um, some believe that uh, black people have smaller brains than white people. Some people believe that uh, that blacks are prone. I'll, I'll give you an example of one. How, yeah. how, how ridiculous it is, okay? This uh, one Klansman was riding with me in my car. And he was an officer in the Klan, all right? And he held the uh, title of uh, Exalted Cyclops, which means like a, like a uh, local clavern uh, leader. And we were just talking, I'm driving, and he says to me, well, you know, we all know that all, that, uh, all blacks, uh, we're talking about black-on-black -black crime. And uh, he said that all blacks have this gene in them that, make, that, uh, that makes them violent. You know, and I'd heard this before from other Klan people. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, who's doing all the carjackings and uh, drive-bys in Southeast? And he was referring to Southeast Washington, D.C., which at the time was predominantly black, a, a high-crime-ridden area. And I said, okay, black people. But that's what lives there. I said, who's doing all the crime in Bangor, Maine? White people. That's what lives there. He's not considering the demographics. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. that has nothing to do with it. You all have this gene. And, you know, you're born with it. And I said, wait a minute. I said, look, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a drive-by. I have never done a carjacking. How do you explain that? He did not hesitate one second. He answered me like that. He said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. How do you argue with somebody who's that far out in left field? I mean, you can't even bite into that and chew on it. No. So I was dumbfounded. I was speechless for the first time, just driving along. He's sitting over here all smug looking at me like, see, you have nothing to say. So I thought about it for a second. And then I said, well, you know, we all know, I use his phrase, we all know that all white people have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. He said, well, what do you, how do you figure that? And I said, well, name me three black serial killers. He couldn't do it. I named one for him. I gave him one. I said, here, I'm going to give you one. Just name me two. He couldn't do it. Charles Manson, I said, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, on and on. I said, son, you're a serial killer. He said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. It's latent. I said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. <laughs> and he goes, well, duh, that's stupid. I said, well, you know what? It is stupid, but it's no more stupid for me to say that about you than what you said about me. 
and he got very, very quiet. But I could see his his wheels were just you know smoke coming out of his head. His wheels were turning, <laughs> burning, right? And he finally talked, and he changed the subject. But almost five months later, he quit the Klan, based on that conversation. And his robe was the first robe I ever got. That's the first. I was going to ask you one, that yeah. was the first robe. You, how many robes have you collected? I have about forty-four or forty-five right now. Wow! And you've talked. And I'm getting one this Saturday. Are you? Yeah. Well, tell us about that one. Uh, there's a Klan leader down in Florida who's who's done. He he's seen the light, and he reached out to me. As a matter of fact, what did he say? He said that uh, he he's come to realize that he's been wrong, and uh, you know he he'd been following me. He thought I was crazy, and you know thought I was you know just something you know, that he didn't like. But he'd been in it for a while, and he saw the light, and he he realizes you know the hatred is not the way to go, and uh, he emailed me. And said, you know, he'd like to meet me. And this is a while back. I just haven't had time to get down there. But I'm going down there on Friday. I'm going to meet up with him on Saturday. And uh, he's giving me his stuff. And what do you what do you do with these robes? I, I keep them. I keep them in a locked up, secured location. I keep a couple in my house because I take them, you know, on tour with me when I give lectures and things. But uh, otherwise, I have locked up. And what I'm going to do is this: I have my 501c3. I'm looking for a place right now to house a museum. I want to open up a museum. And I will display a lot of these things that I have. What prompted you, I mean, to, and I, I know part of the story, you were raised overseas. Well, yeah. And ha- yeah I'm it, from here. You know yeah, I, yeah. yeah. But when you came back to the United States, you were not used to, you told me, what you had seen. Correct. And so. Well, that, overseas, you know, my, my parents were U.S. Foreign Service. My father started out, he was, he was one of the first black Secret Service agents in this country. You know, he wanted to be an FBI agent, and J. Edgar Hoover was a racist. And he, you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't hiring blacks or women. And so my dad applied at the Secret Service, and uh, Harry Anslinger, who was the head of the Secret Service, hired five blacks at one time. And the first five blacks, my dad was one of those. Wow. And um, he, he went as high as, um, as, you know, they would let him go. And, you know, there had been books written about him and all that kind of stuff. But... Uh, he then, after that, he joined the Foreign Service, and we did a lot of traveling overseas. And back in the early 1960s, you know, when I was in grade school, you go to a country for two years, and then you come back home here to the States for a few months, a year, and then get reassigned to another country. So when I was overseas, my classes in elementary school were filled with kids from Nigeria, Italy, Germany, France, Japan, Australia, Russia, whoever had an embassy in those countries all of their kids went to the same school, right. the American International School. So if you were to peep your head in the doorway to my classroom, you would say, oh, you know, this looks like a United Nations of little kids. And that's exactly what it was. But at the same time, back home here in my own country, when I would return, I would either go to all black schools or black and white schools. There was not the amount of diversity in the classroom. So it was either the segregated school or the newly integrated school. Now, of course, today you walk into a classroom, it's that same scenario that I had overseas. So when I was overseas, I was literally living about 12 years into the future because that scenario had yet to come here. So I was already prepared for it, whereby a lot of my peers were not. So consequently, you know, while I may not have spoken some of the same languages of my classmates, we all got along. We all worked together, played together, had slumber parties together, etc. Uh, so I was accustomed to that. And um, 
that was not happening back here, you know, in this country no. for another twelve years, and it, it was a shock to me when I would come back, and people were separated by nothing more than the color of someone's skin, and I came back one time in 1968 at the age of ten, fourth grade, and this was a Belmont, Massachusetts, and I uh, I was one of two black kids in the entire school, myself in fourth grade, a little girl in second grade. So the only time I ever saw her was, you know, at recess or lunchtime. Right. Consequently, all of my friends were fourth and fifth graders, and they all were white. And many of the guys were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join the Scouts. So I joined. And we had a march from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts, to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. And it was a Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, and some other uh, groups. And my den mother let me carry the American flag. And the streets were blocked off, sidewalks on either side, lined with nothing but white people. I was the only black participant in this march, as far as I could see either way. Not that I was looking, but right. I could well, see. You would notice. <laughs> Absolutely. And people were cheering us and waving flags and yelling, you know, the British are coming, all that kind of stuff. As we went down the street, there was a small group of white people mixed into the crowd on my right-hand side, maybe four or five, maybe six couple kids and some adults, who I assume were their parents, who began throwing things. And I was getting hit with bottles and soda pop cans and rocks and debris from the street. How old were you? I was 10. And my, you know, my first inclination was, oh, those people over there don't like the scouts. You know, that's how naive I was. You know, and um, I have no idea why, but I guess they don't like the scouts. It wasn't until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader... They all came running back in the line and shielded me with their bodies. And these are white people. And escorted me out of the danger. And I kept asking them, well, why are they hitting me? Because I saw nobody else was getting this protection. And uh, all they could say is just, shh, move along, Daryl, move along. It'll be okay. So they never answered my question. And so I'm making up answers to placate my own curiosity. I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm the new kid on the block. Maybe they're just testing me, you know, whatever. I had every excuse but the right one. And when I got home, my mother and father, who were not there, were asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? And I told them I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what happened. For the first time in my life, my parents sat me down and explained to me what racism was. And believe it or not, at the age of 10, in 1968, I had never heard the word racism. I had no idea what they were talking about. No idea. And I could not get my 10-year-old head around the idea that someone who had never seen me before, someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew absolutely nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made absolutely no sense. And, you know, these white people who were doing this to me did not look any different to me than my white friends overseas from France or Sweden or Australia or wherever, let alone my friends right there in Belmont, you know, in my class, who treated me rather well, as did their parents. So my parents had got it all wrong. They were lying to me. They were pulling my leg, whatever. I did not believe them. Well, about a month and a half or so later, on April 4th, that same year, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I watched Boston, nearby Boston, burn to the ground, as did right here, Washington, D.C., my hometown, Chicago, Illinois, 
Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit, New York, Los Angeles. Louisville, Kentucky, where I was. I remember this every, well. Everywhere, burned to the ground. And uh, all over race. Yeah. And it was then that I realized my parents had not lied to me, but I still did not understand why people have an issue with the color of someone's skin. And, the, and at the age of 10, I formed this question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 50 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. So I have a vast library at home of books. I started buying books as a teenager and on through my adulthood on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, anti-Semitism, whatever, looking for the answer to that question. I could not find it. So who What's better? What's your heart tell you? Huh? What's your heart tell you? Uh, ignorance. Yeah. Ignorance. And um, so, you know, I had, an, I, had, uh, I had it fall into my lap, an opportunity that I didn't even realize that it had fallen into my lap at the time. Um, 1983, country music had made a, a resurgence in this country. There had been a, uh, a movie out called Urban Cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that John Travolta, Mechanical Bull, Lion yeah, Dancing, yeah. Two-Step, uh, Cotton Eye Joe, all that? As a, that as wasn't a, you, man? No, man, you, not you, me. You, you as a son of, no, no. As a son of the blues and rock and roll, yeah. no, that wasn't me. <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Um, not never once. I graduated from, uh, from Howard University with my degree in jazz, all right? And you know, I'm going to be a full-time musician. And at the time, you know, um, I came out, you know, play rock and roll and blues, et cetera. You know, and you were lucky, you know, if you worked maybe three times, four times a month. Right. Okay. But when, when that movie hit, all the bars, you know, switched over from top 40 to a country. And um, so, you know. That was I, as bad as disco to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell you about I, I played disco too for a while. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, we all did. We all had the, you know, we all had the fat ties. The yeah, lousy and the white collars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I wanted to work full time. I didn't want to do a day job, you know. And, uh, I mean, if you think about it, country music and blues are kissing cousins. Same three chords. Yes, One, it four, is. five. So it was very easy to play. And uh, so I joined a country band, an authentic country band. And I was the only black guy in the band, and usually the only black guy where we played. So we were playing up in Frederick, Maryland, at a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge, which was, which was located at the truck stop, which is now Costco, at 270 and 70. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the time, the, the um, Silver Dollar was an all-white lounge. Not that they did not allow black people in. Just no black people wanted to go in there. Exactly. And for a good reason. Yeah. You know, they were not welcome. Yeah. All right. So here I was in the place. The band had played there before, but my first time in there. And um, we played a set. And after the first set, you know, we all come off the bandstand and go to sit down at the table. And as I'm walking across the dance floor, I feel somebody put their arm around my shoulder. And I see the band up there. I don't know anybody in this place. I turn around and see who's touching me. And this guy says, man, I really, you know, I really like your all's music. And I said, thank you. I shook his hand. And he points at the stage and says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? And I explained, hey, you know, I just, I just joined this band. You probably did see them, but uh, my first time in here. He says, well, man, I really like your music. You know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I was not What do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play piano? Exactly. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Good. And, um... I wasn't offended, but I was kind of shocked that, you know, he didn't know the history. And I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? And I wasn't being facetious. I was just, you know, being right. curious. 
And uh, he says, what are you talking about? I said, well, Jerry Lee learned that stuff from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. Yeah. That's where rock and roll came from, man. Rockabilly, whatever you want to call it. And uh, he says, oh, no, I ain't never heard no black man play piano like that, except for you. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, d- dude never saw Little Richard or Fat right, Domino, right? right? right. So I-, I told the guy, I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis personally. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that I knew Jerry Lee. He didn't buy that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. But he was fascinated with me and wanted to buy me a drink. I don't drink. But I went back to his table to have a cranberry juice. He ordered my, my uh, juice. He clinked my glass and cheered me. And then he proclaims, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Now, this guy's about 20 years older than me. And, wow. I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, how can this be? I mean, I've sat down with thousands of white people or anybody else, had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. How is it that this guy you know, had never sat down with a black guy? And, and he's in Frederick, Maryland. And I know there are black people in Frederick because I've seen them. So, <laughs> yeah, there are quite a few, actually. Actually, yeah. yeah. So how did he miss them? You know? <laughs> what look? And, uh, and I asked him, I just said innocent. I said, why? And at first he didn't ask me. I prodded him, you know, why? And his friend elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. He looked at me just as plain as day, and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I started laughing because I did not believe him. You know, <laughs> I Shows you what you know, pal. Exactly. I, like I said, I've read almost every book on the Klan. I own them. And in none of my books, it's talk about how a Klansman will come up and embrace a black guy and want to hang out and buy him a drink. It doesn't work that way. So I thought the guy was pulling my leg, you know? I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through, and hands me his Klan membership card. I look at this thing. I recognize the, the, the Ku Klux Klan uh, emblem, the red circle, the white cross, and blood drop in the center. I'm like, whoa, this thing's for real. So I stopped laughing, and I gave it back to him. And we talked about the Klan and a few other things, but he gave me his phone number and wanted me to call him anytime I was to return to the Silver Dollar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, you know, Klansmen and Klansmen <laughs> friends, to see this uh, black guy. I don't know if that I'm would not make sure me he, feel good. <laughs> I'm not sure he called me a black guy to them, but, yeah, right. but uh, he wanted to bring them to see, to see me play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. So I would call him. You know, we were there every six weeks uh, you know, on a rotation with other bands. I'd call him like on a Wednesday or a Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, we're going to be down at the Silver Dollar. Come on out. He would come Friday and Saturday with Klansmen and Klanswomen, and they would watch me play, and they'd get out on the dance floor and dance to our music. You know, they didn't come in robes and hoods, right? Came in reg- yeah, they came in regular <laughs> clothes. And on the breaks, you know, I would head over to his table. Some of them would hang there because they're curious. They want to meet me and talk to me. Uh, others, they see me come, they get up, they take off towards the back, want nothing to do with me. Just kind of like, you know, just want to watch me, but not, don't get Interact too close. With yeah, them, exactly. Right. So that was fine. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, I, uh, I quit that band. I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and whatever else was going on. And, you know, I lost track of the guy. Because uh, it wasn't like, you know, I had a day off. And I had to go, go hang out with the Klan and Frederick. Um, <laughs> I don't even think but the Klan does that. But... It dawned on me. Wait a minute. You know what? That was my opportunity. That fell right into my lap to get the answer that I've been, that's been plaguing me since I was 10 years old. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? Who better to ask? Then someone who would join an organization whose whole history and premise Hate has you. been hating people for, who don't look like them and who don't believe as they believe. Why don't I get back in, in contact with that guy 
get him to, to, to set me up with the Klan leader from Maryland. Okay, a state leader is what's known as a grand dragon. Right. right? A national leader is known as an imperial wizard. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start here. It's in, all very Harry Potter to me. I have to tell you just to <laughs> oh, listen. No, 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 no. See, <laughs> see uh, Harry Potter, Potter wasn't even in Baghdad. You know what I mean? Right, Baghdad, right. right. Yeah. But, you know, when... Uh, when this when this was happening, right? Yeah, you know, the Klan's been around way longer than Harry Potter. I know, but, but the whole all the titles just seem but, so. But, but you know weird. where that comes from? That com- that comes from the Masons. I know, I know, the, yeah. The Scottish Rite. Okay, so I figure um, I'll start here in Maryland. I'll interview Klan leaders here. Um, I'll go up north, go down south, go to the Midwest, go to the West. Interview Grand Dragons, Imperial Wizards, other officers, and rank and file members, and I'll put it together in a book, and um, and I will ask. You know the answer. To, you know to get the answer to my question. So, excuse me. I um, I got in contact with the guy. Uh, his phone number had been disconnected by the time I reached out to him, and um, he had moved. So I got an address on him, but no phone. So there was no way I could let him know I was going to come over and talk to him. Right. So I just, I just showed up at his, at his uh, apartment door okay. one evening. That begs the question. You contact. Clan members, you show up unannounced. Right. Uh, have you ever feared for your safety? No, not really. But I mean, I've had some some incidents where I've had to hurt people and put them in the hospital or put them in jail. But fortunately, those have been few and far between. But, but yeah, but it happens. <laughs> not not you putting them in the hospital. Have you ever worried about them putting you in the hospital? No. I mean, I I, I realize that there is that you know potential. You know, there's that element. Um, With that much happen. hatred, it just seems to me. I, I gotta ter- tell you, Errol. I mean, I think it's one of the bravest things I've ever heard to be able to sit down with people who, who hate you just by the way you exist, and sit down and talk with them and ask them why do you hate me, and and what you brought up about um, the guy hearing you play music. I, I was gonna uh, get into it a different way, but to me, I have found, and maybe maybe it's the same with you that music is a very big equalizer oh yeah, no question i mean have no i mean because when i'm playing and you know when we're playing out and, and you do and I've, I've seen you play you're great and you've played with some of the greats i want to go through that but when you see people that normally i mean trump supporters non-trump supporters arch conservative arch liberal middle of the road but if they like the music everything melts away yeah and there's there's a rare moment where you can when people are just people enjoying themselves do you, do you see that as well i see that all the time all, and, and and that's one of the reasons why i got into music and let me let me give you two examples of something you know when you have a, a uh, if you work for a computer firm or you work for a bank and there's a christmas party or whatever uh most of the people there will be all bank people tellers managers auditors etc or if it's computer parties Hardware, software, IT, computer sales, etc. Just computer-oriented people. But when you go to a venue to hear to hear music, whether it's a live band or a DJ or whatever, everybody is there. The computer programmer, the banker, right. the guy who paints your yellow line down your street, the garbage man, whoever is—they're all there together. All right. So if I if I walk into a bar because I want to hear some music, DJ, band, whatever, and I want to dance. And, and, and a song comes on, and the dance floor is filling up. I want to dance. I look around to see if I see a single girl, right, unattached. 
and I see some girl sitting at the bar, and she's going like this to the beat of the music. Obviously, she likes the song. Right. So she's by herself. I'm going to walk over there and say, hey, you want to dance? I don't know her. She doesn't know me. Yeah, sure. She pops off the bar stool, and we go to the dance floor. If it's a slow song, we're embraced like this, dancing around the floor. I don't even know this woman, but I got my arms around her, right? If it's a uh, fast song, you know, we're shaking or whatever. Right. When the song is over, being a gentleman, right, I escort her back to her bar seat, and I say, you know, my name's Daryl Davis, and she says what her name is, and I say, you know, so what do you do? And she says, well, you know, she's the the VP of uh, East Coast Division of Microsoft. Well, man, she's making a quarter million dollars a year. And she says, so what do you do? And I say, <laughs> I'm a, a busboy at... at uh, at Fridays or something. You know, I'm making $9,000 a year or something, right? So where would two people at that opposite ends of the spectrum ever come that close? Right. Music, all right? Now, particularly... Doesn't it feel good? It feels great, okay? In the 1950s, um, well, even before then, Jim Crow laws, if they allowed black people in at all into music venues we had to sit in a separate seating section right. than white people. There were ropes going around the seats with signs hanging down that said, seating for white patrons only, colored seating only, all right? And, it, and if you and I went to the concert together, we could not sit together. We could not cross-sit. If we did, we would be arrested. That was the law. The yeah. law, okay? And it was enforced, just like the law on the bus with Rosa Parks, right? Well, I, when I went to started going to grade school, there was a cooled water fountain mm-hmm. and an uncooled water fountain. Uh, let me guess which one was for me, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I and my first grade year was the year they got rid of that. But I it was uh, like you when you uh, ran across your first time with racism, to yeah. me it was that water fountain and I went because the the uncooled water fountain was lower and I was shorter and so I I I went to that one. Mm-hmm. And I, I had, no, no, you don't use that when you use this one. And I go, well, I don't want to use that one. I want to use this one. And she goes, no, that's the colored water fountain. And I go, the water looks clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't know what, what the hell right. she was talking about. Right. And it, it dawned on me, as it dawned on you, very, it, it was like, that's not the way I was raised. That's not right. the way I was, uh, people were just people. And I, I mean, that sounds trite to say it, but, you know, as an immigrant to this country, as you know, my family was. Who, who wasn't an immigrant right, country, right, other than the Native Americans? Right. <laughs> but we came, and I mean, we were called Arabers. We were called the N word with sand in front of yeah. it, and we were called Arab, camel yeah. jockey, yeah. cowhead, and all of those things. And then they would call me other things. I go, no, no, you didn't get the slur right. You know, <laughs> Wap Dago. That's another group. Right. <laughs> but the the whole thing was, you know, when you're brought up that way. My grandfather used to say, look, um, he had his next door neighbor. He was a judge. His next door neighbor was a, a African-American attorney. And he said, they, the, the KKK hates you for one reason, because mm-hmm. of the color of your skin. I'm Catholic and a Middle Eastern. They got two to hate me. Right. And the crosses burned just as bright in my grandfather's yard as they did in, my, in his next door neighbor's right. yard. So, I mean, that was all what we grew up with. So, like you, when, you know, I, I remember that first time it was like, the, you know, I, I couldn't fathom it. How did that, I mean... How because, did, because you're a rational person and you're looking for rationale behind it. And there is no rationale to racism. There is none. So, you know... Is you it could, worse today? 
There is not an increase in racists, the people necessarily, but there is an increase in racism, the incidents caused by those people. Those people have always been here. Okay, and, and pe- people people want to want to blame Trump, and before Trump they wanted to blame Obama. Those people, you know, Trump, Obama, Clinton, Bush, they did not invent racism. It's been here. Okay, now in in our current climate, in our current uh, era of this particular presidency, those racists tend to feel more emboldened, and they feel you know that they they can have carte blanche and come out here and and enact you know their you know their beliefs. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so we're seeing that. You know, we, we, you, you may you may see a, a slight bump in the number of people because you know they're stepping up their recruitment efforts, but the number of uh, of uh, incidents far exceed the number of people. It's not due to due to an increase in, in people. In social media, I, I yeah. agree with you. But the one thing I noticed was um, white racists always go back to saying, "Well, there are black racists too." So I'm just offsetting what. With, you know, yeah, sure. Black, I, I hear that all the time. Well, well, you know, uh, the, you know, there, there's reverse discrimination too. Yeah, okay. Well, I tell you what. You know what? Nothing. I'm not justifying it, but I'm giving you the facts, the reason. Nothing can be put into reverse until something has gone forward first. Right. You cannot have reverse racism unless you had racism first. Right. So for every action, there's what? An opposite and equal reaction. An equal reaction, exactly. So when do we give that up as as a country and just go, look, we're all folk? Well, music. I see, okay. there you go. So I... now, so let me get back to that for a second. So so while, while these theaters were, were segregated, all right, by color, and you know you want to see Frank Sinatra or the, or the Dorsey's or Glenn Miller or somebody, you had to sit in your seating section in the 1940s. That same- And the 50s and all the yeah, way through the 60s. Exactly, that same Jim Crow law was uh, was in effect in the 50s. However, two phenomenons happened in the 50s. One was the invention of a new genre of music called rock and roll. Amen, brother. Yes, and it was invented by black Black people. people. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Fats Domino. It was popularized by white people. Elvis Elvis Presley, Presley. Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley and the Comets, etc. All right? Now, but, he, but that, that was the first phenomenon. You know, they booked Buddy Holly into New York the, thinking he was a, they, they, a black act. They, they booked him in the Howard Theater yeah. thinking he was a black act, too. Yeah. Okay, so um, the second phenomenon was this. When those guys came out playing that new beat, that boogie-woogie with a back beat, yeah. white kids and black kids could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs for the first time in the history of this country, knocked over those signs and ropes, and they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together, which was illegal. They were race mixing. The cops would come in boogala, boogala. and shut down the concerts, pull the plugs. That concert was over. Uh, city mayors, councilmen began banning rock and roll concerts from their towns because it caused race mixing. Okay. Now, you think about it. These are kids who were raised that these people are, are inferior. You don't associate with them. You don't mingle with them, all right? You, you keep separate, all right? But here they are dancing with those kids and they find, you know what, you know, these kids aren't so bad. Now, they might not marry them or anything like that, but they realize- But you know, some of them did. Some of them <laughs> did, okay? But they realize they're not as bad as they were led to believe, okay? And then when they grow up and get married and have kids, they are not instituting as much prejudice in their kids as their parents did in them. And then when those kids grow up 
and have kids, it's even less. And those are the kids, those are the kids, the ones I'm talking about now, who put Barack Obama in office. Right. Okay? Due to what? Rock and roll, bringing kids together. And see, rock and roll musicians are very, and I'm not saying this because I am one. And I'm one one by God and proudly so. But you know what? We need to be more credited, our our ancestors, our rock and roll ancestors, for doing what, what they did. Well, I'm not taking anything away from the great civil rights leaders like uh, Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King and many other black and white ones, okay? But while these people were marching and protesting and having boycotts and sit-ins and- Music and, did it more subtly. Well, no. Um, what happened was, no, music did it by storm. Yeah. Um, but while, while <laughs> but they were- preaching. Yeah, but while they were doing, all having all these boycotts and sit-ins and demonstrations and marches and all that kind of stuff to bring what? White adults and black adults together- Elvis, Chuck, Richard, Jerry Lee, were were bringing white and black youth together by playing music. By having fun. By having fun. Okay? So rock and roll needs to be credited as much as anybody else for the civil rights movement. Who are some of the people that you've played with? Well, I just named one, uh, the greatest of all time, the man who invented rock and roll, the great Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. Yeah, for 32 years. What was he like to play with? Chuck Berry was a genius. I mean, anybody can say, I play the guitar, I write songs, I sing songs. But how many people can say, I invented a genre of music? <laughs> okay? Beethoven. I, invent, I invented this shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, you know? And, right? and, and my favorite song of all time is Johnny Be Good. And, you my know, band plays that, I, I love mean, that. Every band plays that song. Yeah. And, you know, it is the most performed, most recorded rock and roll song of all time. And every time I play it with him on stage... And there'd be 10,000, 20,000 people out there, you know, if it's like a football stadium or something like that or wherever. Right. And they're all singing the song. Yeah. And how many songs, I mean, if you listen to that song, a very simple song, but what a beat. And how how much of rock and roll was invented right off the back of that song? Oh, my goodness. Keith Richards, George Thorogood. The Beatles. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, anybody who who plays rock. Right. Their DNA goes back to Chuck Berry. Yeah, it does. And you know? and we, we were talking about music. That was one of the things about the Beatles. When they played America for the first time, they had it in their contract that there could be no segregation mm-hmm. in, in their audience. Mm-hmm. And that almost got them kicked out of mm-hmm. the South. There mm-hmm. were whole, there were places in the South that wouldn't have them. But that's, you know, when you talk about the equalization. And that's of why leveling, those people want to ban rock and roll. Yeah. Because they were corrupting white youth. These artists, okay, you know? Well, if music corrupts me, brother, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of my favorite quotes of all time is a, it's, it's called The Travel Quote by Mark Twain. And Mark Twain said, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Yes, it and is. many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so powerful and so true. All right. So, you know, I have been in 56 different countries around the world on six continents. And I've, I've experienced many, many cultures, uh, ethnicities. I don't say races because there's only one race. The human, the, the race. human race. Thank right. you. Okay. Yeah, yeah I yeah, preach you know, that myself. I get cultures, ethnicities, that. you know, nationalities, traditions, etc. I've seen many of them. And, and, you know, traveling with my, uh, with my parents as a kid and traveling now as a professional musician, you know, combined, it's been 56 different countries. And, um, you know, all of that has helped shape who I've become. And, and it has allowed me 
to respect all kinds of people, you know? And that's, I think, you know, had I grown up here in my own country all those years, would I be doing this today? Maybe not. Maybe not. But the fact but that I was exposed. But your parents also help, don't you think? Don't you think parenting Oh, yeah, they that? raised me, yeah. But, but they took me around the world and exposed me to, to different people. So I just view the Klan or neo-Nazis or whoever as, as another culture. I, it, it's a strange culture. But yeah. yeah, I mean, but I go back to parenting on that. I mean, I remember my father, and there was he had a friend of his over at, at our house when we were younger. And one of my heroes growing up had been Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And this guy would not call him Muhammad Ali. He kept calling him Cassius Clay. Right. And my father said, listen, the man is a man. He can call himself whatever he wants to call himself. And you show a man respect by calling him what he asks to be called. Mm -hmm. And if you can't accept that, I can't accept you in my house. Now, this is a guy that he knew for, you know, he's like a neighbor Mm -hmm. for many years. But I learned from my my own parents taught me that people are people and you accept them for who they want to be and accept them Mm -hmm. for who they are. But there's that goes back to. Hatred is taught. It's not. That's right. It's That's not right. an inherent thing. And to my point, exactly what you said, hatred is a learned behavior. And how do they learn it? They learn it through conversation, through dialogue, whether it's dialoguing with their parents, dialoguing with their with their peers, or whatever. They're learning it through dialogue. So if you learn this through dialogue, guess what? You can unlearn it through dialogue. And that's where I come in. So a lot of these people have not had that exposure that I've had. So right. you know, you know the old saying: if you can't take Muhammad to the mountain, you bring the mountain to Muhammad. Muhammad right. So perhaps vicariously, I can, you know, they're not going to travel to fifty-six different countries, okay? So perhaps I can bring some of that to them vicariously. But you said something one time we were doing a a, a forum that you spoke at that the, our paper sponsored, and you said, "It's okay to hate me; it's not okay to act on that hatred." Right. Well, that that was a Supreme Court decision. Um, it was ruled that it, you know, we have the right to hate, but we don't have the right to hurt. Right. Yeah. And so people today, there's it's it's become so brittle. It seems like we're so brittle that we can't even laugh sometimes at ourselves, and it seems like we get buried in in matters that don't matter, including skin color and and religion, different religions. And when I asked you earlier about uh, it being more racist today do you think it's a more brittle culture today do you think that people are more uh susceptible to being offended and not able to talk to one another yeah, uh, to some degree yes and and that's our fault for uh, a lot of stuff is our fault because we have instituted something called political correctness and i don't believe in political correctness i believe in laying all cards face up on the table you know say what so has to be I. said you know and, and and address issues when they happen don't have to have to tread on eggshells you know, be able to talk to one another. And if you offend somebody, say you're sorry. If you're offended, let them know. But let them know politely. So that right. way we can discuss. Hey, mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, let them know so that so that they can correct their action, you know, without beating them over the head with it. And I think, you know, that goes a lot further. But but here's what's happening right now. Let, 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 me, let me get down to the nitty gritty, okay? And then I want to talk about Charlottesville. Okay. Yeah, I was there. I okay. want to talk about that. Okay. And, and, and while we're, but go ahead and make your point. There's a few things left I want to talk about. Charlottesville, the N-word, mm-hmm. the 70s, and voting. I'll ask you this question real quick. One thing I ask everybody on this show, do you vote? I vote. Good. I, I have voted since I turned 18. 
So have I. And I always encourage, and that's the one thing on this show I want people to understand, you can't make changes in this country unless you get off your butt and vote. And you know who proved that recently? Yeah, Trump. The, well, <laughs> the black women of Alabama. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> you got that one right. Yeah. But anyway, your, your point. Okay. Um, what, what was my point? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, uh, oh, here's what's happening, okay? Let me, let me, let me give you the rundown that people don't, don't under, seem to understand. Um, white supremacists tell a lot of lies and try to make you believe all these false truths. But one thing that they do say that is true is that is that by 2042, if we don't stop it, um, this country will be 50-50, white and non-white. Okay? So what? That's our attitude. Right. But that's not their attitude, understand, okay? And they know that shortly thereafter, it's going to flip. And whites will be the minority in this country, all right? When you have been the majority and on the throne of power for hundreds of years... You ain't giving it up. That you is. ain't giving it up. Yeah. And you see those throne legs being whittled down and your butt is being lowered to the level of the inferior people. It's very disconcerting. It's very disconcerting. And that's why these people are stepping up their efforts to recruit, you know... Um, and so they try to do it by jumping on a uh, a legitimate cause, like say illegal immigration. You know, hey, come join us. You know, we're against illegal immigration too. Voter suppression. It's always yeah. about the brown people. They don't exactly. want it. It's never about the white people. When they say uh, illegal immigration, it's not about people coming in from Canada or the UK or Eastern Europe or nor who, yeah, who or are nor here. Or, yeah. Okay. And there are plenty of them that are exactly, illegal. exactly. <laughs> but what what the neo Nazis tell me that I know and the Klan tells me, Daryl. I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide. They don't care if their kid marries somebody from Canada or from the UK or Eastern Europe because the kid's going to be white. But if their son or daughter marries somebody from Guatemala or or uh, or Liberia or somewhere, you know, they go off, right? Did you, did you okay, ever see so the movie Bullworth. A long time. That's an old movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a great scene in there in Bullworth where. Uh, Warren Beatty says, look, we all just got to start copulating together till we're all the same color. <laughs> and, and the old African-American grandmother's looking at TV, watching it, and she goes, damn. <laughs> but there's some, I mean, there is some point to that is that, look, we're all just people. And when the color doesn't matter, maybe we can move on to something else. But what's else. happening is this, okay? So they're getting, they're, they're seeing this, this shift about to happen. And they're scared. They're scared, okay? And that's why they're stepping up that recruitment. And then... These people are campaigning on, come join us, you know, we'll take our country back, take our country back, right? Well, here's what happens. They go and join these groups, Klan, neo-Nazi, National Socialist Movement, whatever, uh, White Air and Resistance, you name it, all these groups. And those groups don't do anything because they, you know, they don't know what to do, right? <laughs> right? Okay, so then they get frustrated. They say, well, you know what? If they can't do it, I'll do it myself. And they walk into a black church, boom, 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 okay? Or walk into the Sikh temple in Wisconsin, start shooting people. Or, or the Jewish Center Or in just walk City. into a mall. Exactly. Or walk okay? into a newspaper. And these people are called what? Lone wolves. All right? Because they're frustrated with the groups that they're in because the group isn't doing what they promised to do. All right? So we're going to, unfortunately, we're going to see more and more lone wolves as we get closer to 2042. I won't say it's easy, but it's easier to infiltrate a group 
than it is to infiltrate a lone wolf. You can't infiltrate one. No, person. you can't influence okay. them that way. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're gone. So, yeah, so you know when if they've made person, that mind switch, exactly, it's you. You're not going to reach them. I don't care who you are. Yeah, your parent, loved one, nothing. They're so, gone. So that's you know that's that's what we you know we're going to be dealing with as we approach 2042. You're going to see more increase in that. So let's let's use that and let's go to the last few things that I want to talk about. Charlottesville. Yeah, that's one of the last okay. things I want to talk about. Charlottesville. Um, let me tell you about Charlottesville. Why why were those people there? What was the primary reason they they came to have a rally in Charlottesville? Well, because of the statue was what we were told. Wrong, that's what we were told. Yeah. Wrong. Okay. I know those people. I know the person who put on the rally. I know a lot of the people who spoke. Okay. I know I know them. And I've 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 even had dinner with some of them. All right, they were not there to um, protest the removal of the Robert E. Lee's Confederate statue. Right. All right. Now, yes, there were some people who came there to protest that, but the majority of people who came there. The ones who organized it. Yeah. Did the ones it? Who came, the... Yeah. The ones who came there. The majority of the ones who came there were there to start the beginning, initial steps of a race war. All right. It's called Rahoa. R-A-H-O-W-A, which stands for Racial Holy War, Rahoa, all right? Didn't work too well, did it? Uh, for, for them, it did right, there, right then and there. <laughs> they, they thought they won. Um, but This year, they proved to be otherwise. Right. But here's the thing, okay? Think about two, two points. One, uh, anytime you want to occupy a piece of public property, if you want to have a rally, a demonstration, or set up a lemonade and hot dog stand, for that matter, you have to have a permit to be on that public property, right? right? So you go to the city, you get an application, you fill out your name, and you state your purpose. You cannot put down as your purpose, I want to start a race war. <laughs> you know, you don't begin the permit. You could, but you're not yeah, going to get the right. permit. <laughs> okay, so, so you say, you, know, you use some quasi-legitimate reason. Uh, my ancestors, uh, you know, were, were fought in the Confederacy, and, and I want to honor them. I don't want, you know, that statue right. removed. Okay, so that's legitimate, fine. Here's your permit. So now once you got your paper, you know, you go, you license, you go do whatever you want to do, right? Most people do that. So they got licensed to have their permit, have their rally. Um, however, here's the thing. Anybody who knows American history knows that there were blacks and there were also Jews. Who, who fought, fought in for the, the Confederacy. Exactly. exactly. Right. Okay. Now, and there are blacks and Jews. Some right here in Montgomery County who support the Confederacy. And to I know this some day. of them. I know them too. Yeah, I, some of them yeah. are friends of mine. Yeah. Okay. I know them too. Exactly. Yeah. They come so, and listen to us play music. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Now, if they, you know, now slaves had to fight for their slave masters. All right. Um, and and Jewish people in the South own slaves, so they didn't want to give up that free labor. So, so they fought for the Confederacy. And they fought together against the blacks and Jews and whites in the Union Army. Now, if we could fight together, why can't we march together 150 years later in Charlottesville? Okay? So, because that's not, not what it was about. Exactly. Would it not add more credibility to your cause to preserve those statues? If you had blacks and Jews marching with you and who, were, who would say, hey, leave that alone. That's my heritage, too. Right. Not that they're condoning slavery, but they're 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 honoring their ancestors by preserving that statue in their minds. Okay, now let me tell you something. I was born in Chicago. My parents are from Roanoke and Salem, Virginia. Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. My ancestors were slaves. I had slave ancestors who fought in the Confederacy. All right. However, 
I honor my ancestors. Without them, I wouldn't be here. Right. However, I do. I personally do not honor the Confederacy. Okay, I, I, I think it's a bunch of BS. Personally, all right, and that's my right. Yes, it so, is. So okay, but mine too, if, and I agree right, with you. And if, if some other black person wants to honor it, that's their business. I don't have a problem with that. I have black friends who honor it. Fine, all right. But my point is this: instead of including them in your protest, you excluded them. And you marched through UVA campus, University of Virginia campus, and the streets of Charlottesville, yelling and screaming anti-Semitic and racial epithets. All right? So it wasn't about heritage. It was about no. hate. That's number one. Number two, um, they claim to be honoring their great, great, great ancestors in the Confederacy. All right? Well, while they are honoring those ancestors, those particular ancestors, they are dishonoring at the same time their closer-in ancestors, the ones who raised them. Right. They, they did not know anybody in the Confederacy. Those people were long dead and gone before these people were even born in Charlottesville. All right? But if they want to honor them, that's fine. However, they know their fathers. They know their grandfathers. They may have been lucky enough to meet their great-grandfather. All right? They are dishonoring those people because what? Those people, many of them gave their lives or lost a limb, an arm and a leg, fighting in World War II. And who are they fighting? They're fighting the Nazis. So how do you tell me you're gonna, you, you're gonna honor your ancestors and, and you're walking down the streets of Charlottesville with people wearing swastikas and flying swastika flags? And well, you're telling me, you know, we, we went to war against the Nazis. We gave our lives against Adolf, against, uh, Adolf Hitler. What Charlottesville told me when I was there and I interviewed people that there are people in this country that are, and you pointed it out, are wholly ignorant of the history of this country. Right. And I remember walking, and there were some uh, far right guys, and they go, uh, uh, and they go, well, we don't have anything against black people. We're just wanting to march right, go over there to that church where the, the Antifa protesters are and, and, and go talk to them. Well, no, they might hurt me. <laughs> so I go to this church, it's supposed to be, Holy ground, right? This, uh, you know, this is, and they have um, for the far left, you know, the, who are, yeah, are marching. Yeah. This is where you would go if you were doused with uh, tear gas or if you were right. were hurt. And it says unity, bringing people together. I said, well, what if one of the far right protesters gets hurt and come over here? You're going to take care of them? Oh hell no, they're on their own. I go, well, so much for unity. Yeah, well, check this out. <laughs> and then the last one I, was I went to these young group of kids. Uh, they were uh, African-American, they were white, there were some Hispanic, there were, uh, I mean, it was a rainbow coalition of kids sitting in this uh, uh, courtyard, and I said, uh, so you all are marching against them? I go, yeah, and, and I said, have you ever, you know, do you vote? No, doesn't do any good. I go, so wh what do you think is going to go, we need a revolution. I go, well, what happens after the revolution? And they go, revolution. I go, but after the revolution, right. and the revolution, I'm going, so just anarchy and chaos. Yeah. I said, you want a revolution, but you don't vote. Have you ever run for office? No, no. wouldn't do any good. I said, so you're not participating in the government. You're only griping about the government. The and definition you of anarchists. <laughs> you don't, it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. And, and, and the, that was on the right and the left. Yeah. I just saw a bunch of people, the people that I saw that you're talking about that organized it, had a an agenda, mm -hmm. and a lot of those who came along came along for the thrill ride mm -hmm. without knowing what the hell they were there for, right. and right. that was the scariest part yes. for yes. me in Charlottesville. And how easily led they were. I I, I went I, I was down in Charlottesville you know a few months ago a couple months ago, 
uh, to uh, for the for the trial of somebody, one, one of the white supremacists. And so the head of the Ku Klux Klan, the Imperial Wizard, he and I are standing in front of the statue, talking, all right? And, and these Antifa people saw us and come running over yeah. and start yelling and screaming at us. And so we, 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 we're, we're walking to, over to the courthouse to go inside and watch this trial together, all right? And, uh, and they're following us, yelling and screaming and, you know, trying to provoke us or whatever. And so we get to the courthouse steps and turn around and they're yelling at me for talking to him, and they're yelling at him for even being here. And then one of them, this is Antifa people, one of them yells at me and says, you should be on our side. Right. And so I walked over there and I stood next to him. I said, okay, I'm here, now what? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, the one I, I wanna end uh, with a little bit of hope. And, and um, I do, ha I always have hope uh, that things will get better. But I do remember a time I think it was before Ronald Reagan was in office, the Jimmy Carter era. We were all listening to disco, wearing, like we said earlier, the wide lapels. Oh, so 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 you won't admit to playing disco, but you'll admit to listening to it. I had to listen to it, but right. I didn't like. I never played it. I never, but there was a time when, and there was a. I remember there was a, a television show called One Day at a Time. Oh yeah, and there was a part where. Uh, the uh, Anne Valerie Romano. Bertinelli or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Valerie Bertinelli. Oh, yeah. I had well, such I a crush on her. Yeah. That's, yeah. No, don't go there. But um, so, but the mother was dating an African American gentleman, black guy, and she's a white guy, and they're dating. She's a white guy. She's a white girl, okay. <laughs> and and so they're dating, and she she says to him, um, "It feels uncomfortable, but maybe our children it won't feel uncomfortable." And I remember thinking there was in that era of the 70 there was just a ray of hope it felt like and maybe it's just youthful splendor and, and wishing but it felt like at some point in time we were all listening to the same crappy music we all had the same ideas and we all had a goal in mind of getting along and, and getting over what i think are very shallow reasons for separating ourselves mm -hmm. and i'd like to think that today as divisive as it is there still is that ray of hope well, I will tell you where that ray of hope really needs to take grip and hold, okay? Where? Three places. Uh, the church and, uh, well, two places, the church and the schools. Right? And, and let me tell you, now, I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to be very controversial, all right? but I've been saying this now for almost 19 years, all right? Uh, there are people who, who uh, go along with what I say. There are those who are totally opposed to it, but I'll say that in a second. Uh, in the churches. Well, we like controversy. Go for okay, it. Okay, <laughs> but hang on. But the, the the churches, you know, we all, you know, I mean, when I say church, I mean any religious synagogue, temple, mosque, whatever. I, mean, I just refer to them all as a church. Okay. Yeah. We all have our own uh, kinds of Sunday schools. You know, where where little kids learn, and 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 we're taught that we, you know, we're all God's children. God loves us all. All right, and we learn. But not it, those other guys. Well, we don't learn that until later. Yeah. Okay, but we, le we learn that we're all God's children. We learn the Ten Commandments, love thy neighbors, I love thyself, uh, on and on and on. Okay, and, and that works fine. We all, we are all multicolored in our little Sunday school or whatever. But then as we get, uh, we reach puberty and adolescence and become interested in the opposite sex, then all of a sudden, you know, you know we want to take, uh, I want to take a white girl to the prom or... Or, or a white guy wants to take a black girl to the prom or a Jewish girl or whatever, and then they're told, 
uh, you know, you really need to marry a nice Jewish girl, or you needed to marry a nice Catholic boy, or you need to, 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 to marry a nice right. white girl, or, no, or, no, or a nice black girl, whatever, these kinds of things. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought we were all God's children. Yes, but. But. Okay. <laughs> so but not that much. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so why are we telling little kids this in church? And then as we get older, they flip it around on us. Okay. That, that is messing with our heads. All right. And the church needs, needs to take a stronger stand and enforce that all the way through adulthood. Right. Okay. And they're not. They are falling short. I blame the church. Schools. One thing that we need to do. Is this the controversial part? Yes. Okay, I'm okay. ready. All right. And I say this because, like I said, I have been, I, I, I have seen the future. I saw the future when I was a little kid, when I was living 12 years into it. All right. right. Um, we need, in this country, now our country is kind of unique. Not all countries have had these kinds of problems. Okay. They may have their own set of problems, but what we have going on here. It's, it's pretty indigenous to here, okay? Which is why a lot of black people moved to France back in the 50s. Right. Because they were treated as equals, all right, by those white people over there. All right, okay. We need to get rid of Black History Month. Now, people are going to freak out when they hear me say that, all right? I'm freaking out. What okay. do you mean? There was a time when we needed Black History Month because we had no black history in our schools. What was being taught was called American history. And for all practical purposes, it may as well have been called white history, because that's exactly what it was. White Absolutely. people were, were being given credit for things, for places they did not discover, and for things they did not invent. They were stealing our history, okay? Um, and George Washington Carver. Exactly. We, we, we knew this, but it was not in the textbook. They were lying in the textbooks, all right? So we fought and fought and fought, because we had no black history taught. Finally, we were given one week. It was called Negro History Week. Carter G. Woodson created that. Right. All right. One week. <clears throat> all right. Because you know nobody's gonna give us everything at once. You, you, no. You dole it out little by little. Right? They give you Black History Month, but it's February, the shortest month in the exactly. year. Exactly. <laughs> Twenty-eight days. Right. We, we're lucky every four years to get another day. Yeah. So, um, so we we have Black History Week. We fought harder and harder. We finally got a whole month. As you pointed out, February, shortest month of the year, all right? And now, we accepted it. Why? Because it was the birth month of two of our heroes, Abraham Lincoln mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass, all right? So I said, okay. And now, here, we needed that because we weren't getting any, any other So Black why history. don't we need Black History Month now? Because it has it, it's reached a point now, I mean, it, it was good for a while, but now it's reached the point of being detrimental. How so? Because every February, we only learn about a half a dozen black people. Um, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, um, you know, and one or two other ones, Harriet Tubman. And then by the time you get through half a dozen, oh, February's over, and you, did, you know, we did our black thing, let's move on. Okay? Well, aren't now, you afraid if you get rid of that month, we well, won't even get well, those people? No, 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 no. Here's my solution, okay? Okay. Okay, so every month, I mean, every year, we study those same people. I'm not taking anything away from them. Nothing taken away from them. They're right. great, okay? But every year, we study those same people. So, uh, and we never address them any other time of the year. Yet, we learn about Benjamin Franklin, Eli Whitney, Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, all year long. We never forget 
who flew the kite and the lightning hit the key and you have electricity? Benjamin Franklin. BS okay? story, but exactly. yeah. Exactly. Okay, but you ask some kid, little kid, in June, um, who was uh, Harriet Tubman? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. She, she was that lady who, uh, who didn't give up her seat on the bus. They got her <laughs> confused with Rosa Parks. Because if they if they it, even remember who Rosa Parks exactly, is, because there is no reinforcement, you only get that in February. But you you, you get Ben Franklin all year long. All right. So, over time, from first grade to twelfth grade, all you learn about are those half dozen people. You you're being subliminally brainwashed into believing there was only a handful of black people in this country that ever did anything. What about the guy who invented the traffic light? What about the guy who invented the ironing board? And all, oh well, we didn't have time for that. We don't we don't have twenty eight days. Okay, so we're so we're, we're being trained to, to to think there's only a handful of people, little ki little white kids and little black kids are are, are learning. There's only a half dozen black people. But Daryl, aren't country. you afraid if we get now, rid of it? Then... No, no. Here, here's the solution. Okay? okay, it's time, it's time that we take Black History Month and 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 and, and what's in there, and put it where it belongs. Put it under the banner of American history and teach it all year long, in embedded in American history. Uh, Women's History Month is March. Tosin doesn't stop being a woman after March any more than I stop being black after February. Why relegate uh, women's history to just one yes, month? Yes, but imagine if you were a black woman in, in, in April. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, American history should be taught all year long. And that way, people begin to appreciate other people because they're learning about them throughout the year rather than relegating them to some little small degree of what they contributed to the to the fabric of this country women created a lot contributed a lot more than can be taught in just march as did black people contribute a lot more than can be taught in February. so you want to expand it you don't want to contract it exactly Get, get, God bless you for it, that. But don't how, call it Black History Month. Call it American History how are you and, gonna do, and have it all in there. How are you going to do that in a country that wants to get rid of Helen Keller <laughs> and, and, and Hillary Clinton in the Texas history books? This is what I'm talking Texas, you know, that's the problem, man. You know, they, uh, they, you wanted, telling me. they wanted to, to secede a while back. Let them go. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, the, the Miss America pageant. Yeah. Okay? When I was a little kid, they did not allow black women to compete. That's true. Okay? Uh, because black women were deemed ugly. They were not beautiful. And and the only judges were, were men. All right? And there were only two categories. And they whistled a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and there were, only, there were only two categories. The swimsuit and the evening gown. Because women didn't have any talents. They couldn't write essays and, and talk intelligently. And now they, it's they were, changed. They were objects. Well, no. Uh, we've changed. Women haven't changed. They've no, 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 no. The, the contest yeah, has changed. Exactly, exactly. Right. Okay, so, so they were they were objectified, all right, with their evening gowns and their bathing suits, nothing else, all right, and and so black women, uh, were were being were were feeling you know low low self esteem. They were not deemed beautiful to compete in Miss America, even though they are Americans, even though they are beautiful, all right. So what did we do to elevate the esteem of black uh, females? We created the Miss Black America pageant. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. To give black girls something that they could aspire to. The reason why to. we created the now, color, uh, the Negro League in baseball. Exactly. The reason United why we Negro had College Fund. On yeah, and on and uh, on. Right. Okay. So land grant colleges. Exactly. So now, uh, we gave black girls something to aspire to. Over time, Miss America came to its senses and opened its doors to any American woman, regardless of their heritage. And since that time, we've had several Miss Americas who've been black. So you're saying with, education has to move in the same direction? Yeah. Um, uh, we've had Vanessa Williams, we've had Debbie Turner, and a couple more. 
Okay, so now that Miss America has come into the 21st century or whatever, 20th century actually, um, okay, <laughs> we, we no longer need Miss Black America. You understand what I'm saying? Right. When are we going to stop needing a month? When are we going to teach American history regardless of somebody's color? Well, that would be nice. Education is, is where it starts. Because we need education. That's radical thinking, sir. (laughs) You're controversial. Listen, Daryl, I appreciate... We could do this for... And I just appreciate you so much. Invite me back for part two. You've got... We will come back for part two. And there are a couple... You know, we got to just spend one show talking about rock and roll music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there is not... Rock and roll is good for your soul. Absolutely. And, 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 And I'll end with that. What you said earlier. Nowhere I've ever been whether it's been on stage, comedy, news, politics, none of it compares to being on stage and playing music. You can lose an audience in a play, you'll never get them back. You can lose audience with a comedian, never get them back. You can lose an audience one song on stage, you'll get them back the next. People are always willing to listen to music Mm -hmm. and have fun, no matter their color, their age, their sex, their religion, it doesn't seem to matter, and it's the most, uh, for me, the most fulfilling time I ever mm-hmm. have is watching other people have fun listening to music. You know, and you know, Chuck Berry had a song called "School Days." Up in the morning, yeah, of school, and and very strangely, you know, all all, all the um, verses dealt with school and 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 all that kind of stuff. But then the last verse, he said. Hail, hail, rock and roll. Hail, hail, rock and roll. Deliver yeah. me from the days of old. Yeah. Long live rock and roll. The beat of the drums loud and bold. Rock, rock, rock yeah. and roll. The feeling is there, body and soul. What was he saying? I know what he was saying. Okay? Because, you know, I played that song with him a thousand times, and then it dawned on me, and I asked him one day. All right? Hail, hail, rock. You know, this is 1959. Yeah. Hail, hail, rock and roll. Deliver me from the days of old. Yeah. Take me out of this stupid segregation. Hail, hail, rock and roll, because rock and roll was bringing whites and blacks together. Hail, hail, rock and roll. Deliver me from the days of old. Long live rock and roll, the beat of the drum, loud and bold. <laughs> <laughs> I love the backbeat, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and we need more rock and roll today and less of this uh, 10 crap that we have. I didn't say that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, thanks once Thank again. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, once again, just ask the question. I am Brian Karam. We'll uh, catch you next time. What thanks for question? tuning in. Well, we had a bunch of them, didn't we? <laughs> we did. It was a good conversation, and that's what I like the best. Thanks a lot. Thank you.